Well, I'm looking forward to uh, stepping back into this study of John with you this morning. Um, we had two components going on in chapter 13, and many people have focused in on the one component. When Chapter 13, obviously, is about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And I'm sure if you grew up in church, you, you've looked at this passage before and you're very, very familiar with it. You're looking at the humility that took place in that setting. But there's also a second component going on in the midst of this story that many people miss, and I really want to draw your attention to it this morning. Um, So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13, and if you're new to New Hope, maybe you don't have a Bible with you this morning, they're in the pew racks in front of you, but also the passages will be up on the screen. You'll be able to follow along that way, and you can uh, just watch there. What I want to explain to you before we get into verse 1 is the role of a rabbi And you'll understand a little bit more significantly what's going on in this passage. A rabbi in the first century, or prior to the first century and thereafter, in the Jewish community, was an extremely revered individual, put at the very, very top echelon of society. So when the common working man saw a rabbi go by, they were in awe of that individual. There weren't that many rabbis. So if we would think in our modern terms, and we would use the phrase, um, a celebrity, you could attach that to a rabbi. So for lack of a better term, we'd say rock star status combined with a politician, combined with a successful businessman, combined with someone who teaches at the collegiate level, all rolled into one. That's what the people of the first century thought of when they thought of a rabbi. Someone who was to be greatly revered. So when people called Jesus rabbi, that was no small deal. They had elevated Him to a very, very high status mentally. So they had attached to Him great meaning. So take that definition for yourself and just kind of put that on the shelf as we move through this passage to help you understand what's going on here when you see the disciples shocked at Jesus' actions. Let's go to verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come and that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end." Now, we're very familiar in church with this thing called the Feast of the Passover, but if you're not, new to, if you're, if you're not familiar with the church term Passover, that's uh, associated with a Jewish tradition that's still carried on today in which they celebrate that God delivered them as a nation from Egypt. Even if you've never read the Bible before, you're familiar with Moses and the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and people leaving, Israel, or leaving Egypt and going out into the desert and wandering around. Well, this is a Passover is that God passed over Israel without killing any of the firstborn of Israel and that the, the blood of the Lamb was smeared on the doorpost of the houses that they lived in. And when the angel of death moved through Egypt and saw the blood of the lamb spread over the doorpost, he passed over that household and no one was killed there the night that all the firstborn of Egypt were killed. So that's why they continue to celebrate it. This particular Passover that you're looking at this morning in this passage is the last Passover that was ever authorized by God to celebrate 
what a lamb, a literal lamb, had done because a new lamb was coming on the scene. There was a passing away of the old covenant and an institution of the new covenant. So from this point forward, this passage forward, there's a new memorial, not one recalling the blood of the physical lamb, the small animal, but now the blood that goes over your heart, the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away sins. Now right away, this text presents a challenge to us because we understand that what Jesus is about to enter into is the Last Supper. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that we would be stepping into the unfolding of the Last Supper. The challenge here is, is that Jesus appears to eat the Passover meal on Thursday evening. When Passover for Jews, the Sadducees especially, was on Friday. And many critics of Scripture look at this and say, well, there's great inconsistency there. How can you rectify these two things? How can the Passover be the Last Supper on Thursday night? Let's look first at what's going on here. Matthew 26, 17. You'll see this on the screen. The disciples literally are asking Jesus about eating the Passover. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, meaning the celebration of the Passover, the disciples approached Jesus and said, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time draws near. In your house, I shall celebrate the Passover with my disciples. Now we understand the disciples, James and John, Peter, they did exactly what they were asked to. They went to this house, they prepared the Passover meal for a Thursday evening meal. However, we're told that Jesus' trial and crucifixion took place on Friday morning And that as a result of his trial and crucifixion taking place on Friday, the Sadducees and the Pharisees did not want to go into the presence of the Romans because it would defile them and they would not be able to eat the Passover meal on Friday night. Let me show you this on the screen. John 18, 28. The Jewish leaders led Jesus from Caiaphas, meaning the high priest of Israel, from Caiaphas into the praetorium. That's where all the Roman guards were stationed. So into the praetorium, and it was early Friday morning, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. So what do we do with that? Jesus is eating Passover on Thursday night. Sadducees are going to eat Passover on Friday night. It can only be one time, right? Okay, now think of this like Arizona and Indiana at daylight savings times here in the United States. I lived in Arizona for a couple years, so I know exactly what's going on in this time clock issue. Individuals who lived in northern Israel, the, the people of the area of Galilee especially, where Jesus was from, always celebrated Passover from sunrise to sunrise within a 24-hour time cycle. People from southern Israel celebrated and looked at the clock from sunset to sunset. And so for them, Friday night was their Passover, which really helped things when millions of people streamed into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover so that they could do it on two different days. Why the separation in time, we don't know, but historians tell us that there were two different time clocks by which the Jews measured when the Passover occurred. Well, Jesus and most of his 12 were from the northern region of Israel. And so they went from the sunrise to sunrise for them. It was Thursday night. 
And for those in the southern region, it was Friday night. So there's really no inconsistency going on here. Just to settle that, so if you ever have anybody challenge you on it, you can take them to that and explain it to them. We're told by John here in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come. No one ever on planet earth has ever not been taken by surprise. I'm surprised all the time. I don't know what things are coming. Jesus was never taken by surprise. He's in full control of everything, not a victim of circumstances. He knew his hour had come. And we're told at the end of verse 1 that he loved them to the end. What does that mean? Because we're not just talking about the end of his life here. This is an important component for you to know personally. The word here that's used is telos. Let's look at the definition for that. He loved them to the telos, to the completeness, or more accurately, a definite point, the point that was aimed at. So Jesus loved them to the uttermost. Why is that significant? Because it indicates to us that Jesus loves His own, us included, to the fullest measure of love. Let me put that in context for you. He knew that Philip would not understand. He knew that three of his own disciples would fall asleep on him when he asked them to pray for him. He knew that Peter would deny him and run away. He knew that Thomas would doubt. He knew that everyone would forsake him. And yet, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. There's no stopping. Jesus is full of love. And so he loves us to the end of our failures, just like he did the disciples. He loves us to the end of our wanderings, to the end of our own unworthiness. He loves us to the end of our deep need. Our God, his love knows no measure. That's why Paul wrote what he did in Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He said, I wish you guys could get it through your heads to understand what is the width and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it surpasses the mind in understanding. Paul wrote that in Ephesians 3.18. So understand, with the horror of the cross in front of Jesus and the knowledge that on the other side of the cross he's returning to the Father, with, with both of those things going on in his mind, neither the anguish of the cross nor the indescribable hope of returning to the Father in heaven Neither one of those deterred him from his position because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus loved them to the uttermost, to the complete end. Go with me to verse 2 now because this is kind of confusing. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. That's kind of an awkward statement even the way it's written in the Greek language. And it's awkward that's the way it's written in the English language there. And it's a really abrupt shift. We go from the really bright love of Christ to the darkness of satanic behavior. We're going to get into that next week. What does satanic behavior look like? But we'll just touch on that for a moment here. Judas, who has known the same love the disciples have known, that Jesus loves right to the uttermost, right to the very end, is repelled by the same love that drew the others in. So you look at individuals around you who are repelled by the love of Christ, you can look at this passage and say, 
how can that be? The same action that drew others to Jesus repelled one who completely stood opposed to him. Well, we're going to look at that next week. How does that actually happen and how does that work? But understand this, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. John wanted us to understand that so that we can really grasp how strong is the evidence of the love of God in Christ Jesus. John wanted us to understand that among those whose feet Jesus is about to wash is Judas. Let that sink in. This is the guy who's going to turn him over to be crucified by the Romans. So the serpent is rising up to strike, and Jesus knew it. And we're told by John, it's satanic in its origin. Yes, there's human activity, but you look closely at verse 2, and the devil had done it. The devil put it into his heart. Now add to all these issues that we've already looked at, and understand there's a competitive spirit going on here as well. The disciples are battling with each other over who's the greatest in the kingdom. If you look at the Matthew version and the Luke version of the same story, you're going to see that they're actually bickering with each other over who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus is about to give an unforgettable lesson, which I believe the more you think about it, the more profound you're going to find it to be. So we find a very interesting description in verse 3, and to help you understand that, I've asked an individual to help me present this to the church this morning. So, Joe, would you come on up here? Joe Bustamante is a, a physician in the area and went with us on the trip to Africa. I called him last night, and he didn't answer his phone, so I just left him a voice message and compelled him. You need to take a seat over there, okay? I compelled him to feel guilty into helping me out. I should know never to volunteer. Yeah, you should know never to volunteer. That's true. So Joe is going to become someone who's going to kind of represent Peter this morning, okay? Last night I used Dr. Nelson, and he was thoroughly uncomfortable at the end of this, so I anticipate you will be too. Okay, so you, yeah, you already are. So you can go ahead and take your shoes off if you don't mind, and, and your socks unless you want your socks to get wet. So I'm going to help you guys understand a little bit about what's going on in this particular setting. Look with me at verse 3, and let's see what Jesus did. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now understand, people at this period of time, we're, we're just going to let Joe bake for a minute there, okay? Just so he gets thoroughly uncomfortable, okay? Understand that people at this period of time wore sandals, all right? No socks. They didn't have nice Nike tennis shoes. They either went barefoot or they wore leather sandals, and every place they went was dirt. The streets of Jerusalem were dirt. There's no asphalt, okay? Same place where the animals walked. So where the donkeys and the cows were driven through the streets, where they urinated in the streets, where they did what animals do in the streets. Okay, you got the picture? So people are walking through the streets. They're getting all this on their feet. Gross. Now, you can imagine the amount of dirt that piles up on someone's feet. 
let alone the stink. Okay, you're getting to put yourself in the first century setting. Now, we understand that it's a mark of honor in the first century to provide a servant at a dinner by the host to provide a servant to wash the feet of the guest coming into the home. That was, that was a mark of honor. It was a breach of hospitality to not provide for it. It was a very common thing at the common daily meals for wives to wash their husband's feet, for children to wash the feet of their parents. And in a Jewish home, a Jewish slave could never be made to wash the feet of their masters because it was considered so menial. They would actually find a Gentile servant to come into the house to wash their feet. So you're beginning to get the picture of what's going on here. Now let's picture the disciples reclining at the mats. They're at this dinner that's been prepared. The huge celebration of a Passover meal. They're laying on the floor on a mat like they typically do with their head probably resting on their left arm so that they could eat with their right hand. Their feet are pointing out away from the table. And at that moment, we're told that Jesus begins to adopt the dress of a slave. He puts on clothing that's looked down upon by all of society. Culturally, what he's doing is offensive. Now look closely at verse 3, and it says to us that knowing that all things had come into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and that he's going back to God, Jesus puts on a towel. Understand this, what Jesus knew determined what Jesus did. He knows that God has put all things in his hands, and that he's come from God, And he's going back to God. And he puts on the towel of a servant. See, this is where Jesus and I differentiate because I'm so absorbed in my human nature. Because if I'm Jesus and I've got all the power and the status, I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. And God's put all things in my hand and I've got Judas in the room. (laughs) He's not going to stay around long because I'm going to snuff out Satan. See, in my humanness, that's what I would do. With a blast of wrath, eliminate Judas. But instead, what does Jesus do? He washes their feet, including the feet of the betrayer. You understand, I want to remind you that the humility that you see Jesus take on when he does this kind of thing does not come out of poverty, but it comes out of his wealth. He was rich. But he became poor for our sakes. That's what we're told according to Scripture. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. There are few things more beautiful than a humble, rich man. I've known a few in my life. I've associated with some individuals of great wealth. I have personal relationship with an individual who lives on 10% of his income and gives away 90%. He's a very wealthy man. Now you might say, well, if I earn $300 million a year and I gave away 90%, I could live on $30 million. I could make do on that. It's, we're talking about the attitude of a heart, though. They're not gathering it all for themselves. They're giving it away and spreading it out. So we're looking at a rich person who became poor so that through his poverty... 
you might become rich. Now understand, at this moment in time, sitting around the dinner table, the disciples are still expecting the inauguration of the kingdom of Israel. They're thinking Jesus is part of this crowd. Remember, it's only been four days. Yoshana, Yoshana, save us now. All of Israel has surrounded Jesus saying, you're the one. And everybody's riding the crest of that wave. The disciples are at dinner with a celebrity. The rabbi has been elevated higher than anyone in Israel. The crowd's cheering him. So they're anticipating the arrival of the kingdom. So now you can understand the shock at his action. The fitness of things in their mind mentally has been shattered to see Jesus put on a towel. So we see in verse 6, this is what it says, so he came to Simon Peter. And at that point, you just want to go, I know what's coming. Because John loved to pick on Peter for some reason. He's always picking out Peter. So he came to Simon Peter. Enough said right there. If you grew up in church, you know what's coming. And look at what Peter said. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now understand, like Joe sitting here, Peter's been watching the room. He's watching Jesus work from disciple to disciple, and he knows his turn is coming. It's not far away. And it's building within him the sense of anticipation that the rabbi, the one who's exalted in Israel, who's introducing the kingdom, is coming to him next. Now, doubtless for all the disciples, this was extremely embarrassing. I asked Joe yesterday on the phone, I think I left the message for you, would you be willing to expose a body part at New Hope tomorrow morning? And I didn't clarify which one. I just left it on his phone. It is embarrassing to have to put those really beautiful feet you have there out in public. Man, those are big feet. What size shoe do you wear? 11. Okay. All right, so he's got great balance. So we understand for most this would be an embarrassing situation. And Peter's watching this. So his objection is really blunt, but totally ignorant. You're going to wash my feet? I don't think so. Now, in your notes, if you picked up the bulletin this morning, you'll see that there's two different words used for washing the feet. One is nipto, and it's used repetitively over and over and over again in verse 5, 6, 8, 12, and 14. And nipto means just one part of the body. But there's one other word that's used, the word luao. And luao means to bathe all over, a complete submersion. And the distinction is really important to this passage because Jesus is about to teach the importance of a holy walk, not just the act of humility in allowing someone to wash your feet and to be the person who would serve, But he's also going to talk about what does it look like to be a person who walks before a holy God. Because we understand that when we trust the Savior, when we become a believer in Jesus Christ, we are bathed all over. And that's the word luao. Our sins are washed away. And we are forgiven according to the authority of Scripture. Hebrews 10, 17 says this, And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. So at the point of your salvation, when you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you came into immediate relationship with him. He washed away your iniquities. 
He sees you as holy. However, and this is a big however, as we walk in the world, church, as we walk among society, we're exposed to all kinds of defilement. I mean, I can just watch Fox News and have images popped in my mind of things I don't want to pop in my mind. It used to be, what movies should I not go to? Then it became, what television shows should I not watch? And now it's, what commercials can I not watch? You understand what I'm saying? How fast can you hit the mute button before your 10-year-old starts asking you about things being advertised on television? So we're getting society to a point where we understand defilement can just literally attach itself to us as though we're a magnet and it's steel and it's just drawn to us. So here's the big however. We do not need to be bathed all over again. The word luao, because that is a once for all. But there is a daily confession, a cleansing that needs to take place. And that's the illustration Jesus is about to give here. Because God promises us He will cleanse us if we confess our sins to Him. It's one of the reasons I stop the way that I do in the midst of communion to allow you time to talk to the Father about anything going on in your life that you want to confess to Him. Because this is what we're told in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's see Jesus' response. Verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. You ever been in that place where God wants to make you the example for everyone else? You ever been in that place, Joe? Right now. Yeah, right now. So there's, there's that time when you sense that, whoa, I'm about to be made an example, and you're thinking, ah-ah, no way. I'm not going there. Don't do that to me. I don't think so. And that's Peter's response. Why? Because he's thinking no higher than at the level of what is socially acceptable. He's not thinking through kingdom eyes. What is God going to accomplish through making the example? So Peter's response, verse 8, Peter said to him, Never, you shall, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now Peter did not understand, but instead of waiting, he impulsively tells God what to do. And it's a strong double negative in the Greek language. No way, never, it's not going to happen. You will not wash my feet. See, Peter really meant it. He was being emphatic. Now understand, if there were nothing more at stake than the act of foot washing, Jesus' response would seem really petty, wouldn't it? That would be the petty response of a dictator. I command you, let me be humble and wash your feet or you're fired. Well, that's not what's going on here. See, there's more at stake than the act of foot washing. What is meant by no part with me? We really do need to understand that. The word part has reference to fellowship. Jesus used the same example in the words concerning Mary and Martha. You might remember the setting. You're familiar with the story, perhaps. Martha's busy working in the kitchen. She's cooking a meal. And Mary, her sister, has ducked out of the kitchen and gone to sit down with Jesus and just to talk with Him. And Martha comes into the room and stomps her feet. Master, will you tell my sister to get back in the kitchen and help me? There's things to be done. What's Jesus' response? Martha, 
Your sister Mary has chosen the better part. Look with me up on the screen. Luke 10.42, Mary has chosen the good part. It's the exact same word that Jesus used when He said to Peter, you'll have no part with Me. What is that? Here's the Greek word that's associated with it. It's the word maris. And maris is a participation. So He's not telling Peter, you're going to lose your salvation if you don't let Me do this. He's saying, you're not going to be in fellowship with Me, Peter. And what I'm about to do, you don't understand, but you're going to understand it later. It's necessary for this cleansing to take place. So we'll ask ourselves, how does this affect me? Because if we're defiled, if we've got sin in our life, if we've been involved in activities we should not be involved in, we're defiled and it's really difficult to have fellowship with a holy God, a perfect God, when we're daily active in sin activity. And so we come before the Father and we say, Father, I need that fellowship restored. I am spotted from my activity with the world. I've been stained. That's why James wrote, you must remain unstained from the world, unspotted. So this illustration becomes stronger and clearer for them that unconfessed sin hinders our walk with God. It doesn't remove us from a relationship. But we understand that when we sin, Whatever we do on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, when we sin, we have an advocate who hears us. Look with me on the screen, 1 John 2.1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what's the washing? What's the washing that's about to take place here? This illustration that Jesus is using for symbolism. It's not baptism. We're not talking about baptism. There's something more going on here. There's a searching out during the process of confession. There's a searching out to come before the Father and say, God, I need you to look at my heart and show me what took me there in the first place. See, it's not just the act of sin. It's the void represented in your life that allowed that sin to creep in. What's that missing component And I'm left with a choice. I choose to do something holy or something sinful, and I choose the sinful thing. You've got to come before the Father like the writer of Psalms did and say, God, i got a wicked heart here. Help me understand what's going on. Look with me on the screen. Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And I would add on to that, especially while we live in this defiled world. It's constantly dragging us down. So we come before the Father and say, God, will you examine my heart? Show me if there's any wicked way in me. So that's all what's going on behind Jesus trying to give this illustration. So we see in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So at this point, I'm thinking Peter's ready for a bath. Okay, Peter's, he's thinking, let's fill the bathtub up. But Jesus says, that's not necessary. Why don't you check the temperature, Joe, and go ahead and put your feet in there because I wouldn't want it to be too hot for you. Is that just about right? Not too cold? I want to treat you well, okay? So I get to be Jesus, you get to be Peter, and this is what's going on. The rabbi, who is the master of the universe 
who has all things in his hands, pushes back from the supper table, makes his way over to Peter, pulls his towel out, and here's the remarkable thing. I've got like a six-foot towel around me. You have to get pretty close to that individual to wash their feet. And then to use your rag and begin rubbing their feet. Fortunately, you had a bath before you came today, right? So you don't have too much street dirt on you. See, but this is what's going on. Peter's allowing the master of the universe to massage his feet, to wash off all the manure, all the animal waste, all the street dust. Go ahead and lift your feet up. And then that's not enough. It says that Jesus had a towel with him. So he didn't just leave him there with wet feet. He actually dried off the feet of the fishermen and left them feeling as though they had been completely served. You can go ahead and put your shoes back on. Thanks for helping me, Joe. I appreciate it very much. In the midst of this, while we see this evidence of humility, the master of the universe putting on a towel to do the most menial work of a slave, at the same time, he's talking about getting the dirt of life washed off your body and using it as an illustration. Now, I know that's not his primary reason for doing it, but Peter's hearing all this, and as impulsive as he is, he rushes from one extreme to the other. The pendulum is swinging. Okay, if you're going to wash me, wash me all over. I want to be completely cleansed. Well, Jesus has a response for him. Go with me to verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not all of you. Talking about Judas. For he knew, verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So now Peter's unrestrained exuberance opens up the opportunity to turn the foot washing into another point. See, he, we understand that when he says you, do, you only need to have your feet washed in physical terms, there were baths throughout the first century, public bathing areas. Individuals could go in and completely wash their body and be cleansed. But then they still had to walk back home, didn't they? They still had to walk through the dirty streets. So when they got home, they didn't have to wash their entire body again. But to be clean, they needed to wash the dirt off their feet. So you don't need your whole body washed, Jesus is saying. You are clean. Meaning, you have come to know who I am. Your salvation is secure. But we're using this double image here to help them understand another bath would be redundant. We're not re-crucifying Jesus every time. And we understand the cleansing, just so we're really clear, the cleansing that you received when you professed Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the same for me, it's a one-time deal. It never needs to be repeated. It's never lost. Are we real clear on that? Let me show you in Scripture on the screen. Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One time. So what we're talking about here is confession. There's a quote that's given by one of my favorite theologians, Charles Simeon. He lived in the 1820s, and he really nailed it. I wanted you to see this. Just let, let me read it to you. The moment a sinner drawn by the Holy Spirit comes to Christ... 
He is completely and finally cleansed. It is the apprehension of this which gives a firm rock for my feet to rest upon. It assures me that my hope is a stable one, that my standing before God is immutable. It banishes doubt and uncertainty. It gives the heart and mind abiding peace to know that the benefits I have found in Christ are never to be recalled. So Jesus says you're clean, but not all of you. That's how he ends that part. Though not every one of you. Meaning Judas may have been washed, he may have had his feet in the bucket, but he was not cleansed. And just so we're really clear, Judas was never a believer in Jesus Christ. He is not an individual who lost his salvation. He's one who never got there in the first place. We're going to look at that next week as we look at the activity of Satan in Judas's life. So go with me to verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? He's about to unpack the nature of the foot washing. Do you notice, first of all, that all the disciples needed it? There was no exception. Every one of them needed this cleansing that took place. So Jesus is about to answer his own question. Go with me to verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, if you happen to own a copy of the NIV, it may say master instead of teacher. It's the exact same word. It's the word rabbi. You call me rabbi. You see that? You call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord. It's the Greek word kyrios. You call me rabbi and kyrios, two extremely exalted titles. Master means teacher. Lord means ruler. What's the difference? The teacher is believed. The Lord is obeyed. So Jesus has hemmed them completely in by saying this. I'm not saying I am your teacher and Lord, but you call me your teacher and Lord. And that I am. So what's he doing? He's using the confession of their own lips. You're the ones who say it. I am your curios and your rabbi. So why are you not doing what I do? Remember, they're bickering. There's fighting going on in the room about who's the greatest. This echoes Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So there's a crucial lesson going on here for people who are fighting in the church about who's the greatest because Jesus is about to show what it looks like to be the janitor. That's the example that he's giving them. There's no servant that's greater than his master is what he's about to say. So not to follow the example of Jesus is to exalt ourselves above Jesus. In the Roman culture and in the Greek culture, the Romans had no use for humility. And the first century Greeks despised manual labor. I'll give you more about that in just a minute. Go with me to verse 18. Truly, truly, or 16, I'm sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is where we're going to end today with this promise, the promise that he gives. 
Before you close your Bibles up, I want you to see this very clearly, what's going on here. When Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them, that means there's a sequence there. If you know these things, there's an outcome. You get a blessing out of this action. So what's the first action? Number one, humbleness. Second action, holiness. As a result of that is a blessing. Meaning that when we humbly serve others, when we walk in the path of God's holiness, when we do what He tells us to do, that's when we get to enjoy His blessing. However, it's not just enough to know this truth if we don't put it into practice. If we just showed up here this morning and said, wow, that was kind of cool. I got to see Dr. Bustamante's feet washed on stage. He was really uncomfortable. And I learned some cool history facts. And I saw some things that I never saw before in Scripture. That's really great. I made some great notes in my Bible. But if you just gained intellectual information and it never translated to the doing, what good is that? There's no benefit. James makes it very clear that the blessing comes in the doing of the Word, not in the hearing of the Word. So we can't just give intellectual assent to this. We've got to put it into action. So Jesus said, if you know these things, here's where I'm going to end with you. I'm going to ask the question, what things? It's in your notes this morning, the very last part. You'll see it up on the screen as well. What things? Number one, the need of placing our feet in the hands of Christ for the cleansing. He's the one who extends the forgiveness. That's why it was important for him to put on the towel and go around and wash the disciples' feet. He's the one that can extend the cleansing. Number two, the owning of Christ as our Master and our Lord. He's the one who's Lord over our life. So if He's willing to do it, why shouldn't we be too willing to? Number three, the need of serving one another. And number four, performing it as Christ performed it with really, really meek love. Here's another detail about the first century world at dwellers. The Romans and the Greeks did not even have a word in their vocabulary for humility. There was no way to describe it. It didn't exist in their vernacular. No word to even express the idea. Do you understand the culture that Jesus is speaking to? These individuals haven't seen humility modeled, and Jesus is instituting it at the beginning of the church. So that the church would understand if the church is going to advance, it's going to be a church which serves. A church that moves forward representing humility. And if I'm your master and I'm willing to do it, why wouldn't you not be willing to do it as well? So here's where I want to end. I want to take you back to verse 3 because there's something remarkable after seeing all this. Verse 3 says this, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God, He got up from supper. (laughs) Isn't that just shocking? Think about that, church. Knowing that He has all things in His hands, that He's come from God, He's going back to God, He got up from supper. Here's what you know. You know that you have been born of God. You know that one day you are going to God. You also know that we have all things in Christ. So like Jesus, you have been born again. In God, you belong to Him. 
One day you are going back to God and that you have all things in Christ. So we ought to be able to follow our Lord's example and push back from the supper table and begin to ask, okay, I'll take on the servant role. If I need to change diapers down in the nursery, I'll change diapers down in the nursery. If I need to spread mulch under the trees, I'll spread mulch under the trees. Whatever is necessary to serve to advance the kingdom, that's the example our Lord gave us. Are you willing to do that? I'm going to pray that Christ would seal this in our heart this morning. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that we'd not forget these things this week or in the month or the year ahead of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we've come in here and we've seen the ultimate example of serving by celebrating communion. And we took the bread and we took the cup. We were reminded of the ultimate service of the ultimate servant who gave everything for us. But God, because we're a pretty proud people, it's really hard for us to push that pride down and want to serve the way that Jesus did, so we have to go against our own nature. So Father, I ask through the power of Your Spirit that works within us for those that name the name of Jesus Christ, because we can only do this in Your power, that You would work through us today and tomorrow and the week ahead of us and the year ahead of us, not only to remember these things that we've heard this morning, but to do them. Father, we are prone to be forgetful people. So I ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would remind us that you would seal these truths in our heart. Thank you for what you're doing among this body at New Hope, conforming us to your image. God, I pray for your blessing upon these people for having been here today. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Have a great week, church.